Hello and welcome to Pop-Up Submissions Live. Today's theme is crime writing. So, please put your hands together for my very first guest, author of the Liverpool Mystery Series, yes, Jack Byrne. And on the other side of the room, I'm all right, thanks. Author and Litopian, John Duffy. Final show of the month today means in 60 minutes or so we'll have our monthly winner. Let's see what today's submissions have to beat. Miriam Morrison took a towering lead two weeks ago with her romantic comedy, The Shop of Second Chances. You can tell from the score that we all really loved it. But will we love one of today's submissions even more? Well, stick around and see. It's too late, Jonathan. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> it's all recorded right now. Uh, that is just to say we have a, a C-word bomb in the very first submission, so if you're a sensitive disposition, you might want to block your ears. But on, on the other hand, why bother, really? Um, first submission. It's from Jonathan. It's called The Eleventh Commandment. It's crime. It's thriller. It's LGBT. And it's got an interesting blurb. This is it. There is no justice just us. TXIC, if you think about it, that's the 11th commandment. I like that abbreviation. Classy. It's set among new age travellers at the turn of the millennium and contains a possible answer to the question posed by Judith Butler in her 2012 Adorno Prize lecture, Can One Lead a Good Life in a Bad Life? Duh, Judith Butler, famous philosopher, of course. Here, Snatch might meet Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Let me tell everybody about you, Jonathan. For 25 years, you say, I lived in a traveller's van. How interesting. Uh, Crisscrossing Europe in search of an anarchist nirvana. The 11th commandment is a love letter to the people of the political struggle. Uh, samples of my short fiction, non-fiction and poetry can be found at Vocal Media under my name. You should give us a link for that because we're very pleased to, uh, to put that onto, onto the screen. And I'm delighted to say that we have a first-class reading, a really minute, from Barbara. The Eleventh Commandment by Jonathan Tanburn, read by Barbara. Chapter One. The night was almost completely dark in the communal sleeping tent of the German protest camp and silent, apart from the usual chorus of coughs, farts and snores. It's me, whispered Martin. I know, I can smell diesel, Coco was disapproving. Get your hand off my leg, you queer cunt, from Screwfrost, who Martin had touched while groping for his sleeping bag. Sorry, mate, I'll try and find your cock next time. Coco stared up into the darkness and caught herself wondering if the expression queer cunt wasn't a bit of a contradiction in terms. Now a new sound could be heard in the tent as Martin tried to pull his boots and jeans off without getting mud and diesel on his sleeping bag. He slipped his wallet out of his hip pocket and put it in his sock before getting in and zipping up to his chest. Coco rolled over to the lads and whispered, This is really fucked up. We need to move on tomorrow. Yep. Right you are. B. 
Be quiet, please. We are trying to sleep. Twenty raindrops rattled across the heavy canvas roof of the tent, a sagging structure near the edge of a field where the German state wanted to recycle spent nuclear fuel. An evil chuckle rose from the area where our three friends were trying to sleep. Any idea where we will be going, Coco? whispered Martin. Just away from here is good enough for me. Yeah, I have an idea, but we need a bath and a laundrette first, and some German cash. We can't get on a train in this state. Stupid people, don't you even understand your own language? Be quiet in this tent, it is for the sleeping, yeah? Martin belched loudly and the smell of diesel intensified. If you keep on sucking diesel every night, my friend, you're going to get ill. Time to go, boys, isn't it? Nur weil die Inselaffen nichts verstehen, denken sie, wir würden sie nicht verstehen. Hey, Engländer! If you're quiet now, I'll take you to the station tomorrow, okay? Could you drop us in Karlsruhe, do you think? Coco, thinking quickly, was already making plans for the future. Yeah, okay. It's a deal, my friend. See you at breakfast. Hey, Coco, I think I know what you're thinking. Shut up now and go to sleep. Bright and early, the next morning, the three friends climbed out of the battered VW van in front of the main train station in Karlsruhe, where passers-by shook their heads in disapproval at these tatty, young foreigners, shamelessly enjoying the morning sun. Since fleeing England for the continent, the three friends had relied on obliging Germans, who were impressed by their tales of daring, revolutionary deeds at home. Coco was the only one who already carried some local currency, which she had acquired by picking pockets in Cologne. They found a bank. So Martin asked about changing money and was sent to the Wechselstube in the next street where they cashed enough Deutschmarks for their immediate needs. Just down from the money changer was a phone shop where a cheerful Turkish man sold them a cheap handset and a prepaid card. While in Cologne, the friends had met an Englishman who lived in a big, old, 50-seater bus and planned to spend the winter in Portugal. He gave Coco his telephone number and offered to take all three of them with him on his drive to the south for just a small contribution for fuel, diesel money, as he put it. Coco tried his number now, but either he was not awake yet or the number was wrong. He didn't pick up. Next on their to-do list was a bath, and they set themselves to finding out where the nearest public baths would be found. Screwfast slipped into a McDonald's to use the facilities and the others were standing on the pavement waiting for him when a young German man came up and spoke to them. Okay, and we get we get elided at that point. Should we go to the genius room and see what they are first? Actually, let's see what Barbara says because she narrated it brilliantly, skillfully. Um, and Barbara's saying, actually, two two great comments. Um, it wasn't easy to change languages, but I thought you did it very really well. Um, lots of good bits, um, says Barbara, but characters need defining. That was exactly what I thought, too. At the moment, they yep. could be interchanged, and it wouldn't matter. Mm. Yep. No clear main character, so not sure who to follow. You're agreeing with that, um, are you, Jack? Yeah, I mean, there was talk of three uh, friends who are obviously at the centre of the story and no doubt their relationship will develop. But for the first seven, eight hundred words, I couldn't pick between them. Yeah. I had no idea yeah. who was who. And yeah. I think I, I think that's an issue that the, the writer needs to resolve and quickly and he needs to think about whose voice he's using and then to privilege that voice. 
Or, you know, if he wants to change it, just, you know, use technique to do that, a chapter each or, or whatever. But I think that needs attention, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. Do you agree, Johnny? I do, Pete, yeah. I, I felt exactly the same. Now, I wasn't too sure what the scene was portraying. And, and there was a, you, what we've said already, that, that there was no definition between the characters, really, that anyone could have said any of the speeches, really. Yeah. Um, it, it, did, it did baffle me. And there was a funny moment where it changed into the narrator's voice. Um, all of a sudden, we were talking about the three friends in, in the narrator's voice. And it, for me, that yeah. didn't work at all. It, it bumped me straight out of it um, because we yeah. were having this kind of people all messing about in a tent, you know, there's a bit of banter going on and all that sort of stuff. But then the three friends... That phrase, oh, hang on, what's this? And yeah. then we dropped into that same. We dropped into the same voice a little bit later on as well. Yeah, so got a bit of a point of view problem, maybe. Yes, yeah, so um, I think so. Yeah. And he says, "Johnny, sorry, go on." No, I think the writing is good, and you know, it's mm. entertaining and engaging. It's yeah. just you know, what he's choosing to do with that writing at the moment. And, and to be honest, it reads like a comedy. You know, the slapstick and, the, you know, the dirty, smelly, you know, and there's no sense of crime in it yet either. You know, I don't get any of that yet. So I think, you know, as a start of the novel, he needs to focus a bit on, you know, what, what emotion he wants to give the reader. Because at the moment, it's slightly, I don't know, amusing, but that, I don't think that's enough to drag you in. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a hell of a job. It, it, it Go on. Sorry. It does on, read Johnny. almost comic. You know, it, there's, a, there's definitely a comedy feel. And the, the sense of banter is quite good in that respect, yeah. you know, with, with, with people stumbling about in the dark. Uh, but it, it, it's a little bit at odds with the kind of the, what, the tone of the book it, it, as a crime book at the moment. It could be a, a bit of a caper more than anything else. It could yeah. be. It's, it's going to be picaresque. That's, that's what I think. It's going to be lots and lots of interesting incidents, yeah. not necessarily held together by anything other than you know, pretty much the same characters and the journey yeah. uh, going on. Uh, I just want to ask you, actually, um, Jack, about beginnings. Um, do you have any any way that you you start a book? It's almost an impossible thing to do when you think about it logically. Yeah, for me, you have to start with something that will resonate throughout the book. And it has to have some meaning beyond the lines itself. I'll give you an example. It might be good, bad, but it is one of mine. Uh, Under the bridge starts with the line, the bone poked out of the mud and into Michael's life. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that works for me. Yeah, yeah. So, and I know it's not easy. And uh, the the good thing about this is you can write your novel, and you can keep going back to that beginning and sharpen it and sharpen it and try a new line and a new twist and keep going back, you know, yeah. until you're happy with what you get. So Barbara says Johnny's hair looks quite nice, quite fluffy today, and Annie says Johnny's hair <laughs> looks nice. So yeah, you've got a lot of hair fans. <laughs> yeah, my, my 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 dress is just off screen here. <laughs> um, so uh, vagabond uh, raises the issue that we've scrupulously avoided at the moment about the c word, and James has just done that too. Actually, the c word turns yeah. some off. I find it more objectionable, funnily enough, when I hear it 
rather than if I read it, I don't mind at all. But um, hearing it, it's almost almost like I'm expecting somebody to be calling me that. <laughs> so it's, it's oh, God. <laughs> um, it's what, coming into that modern point. So, what's the time when you heard the F bomb on TV? You were you were astounded, yeah. you know, and, and, and you fell over and you fainted yeah. and everything. And no, no, I would say if you look at things like Afterlife with Ricky Gervais, and the C words get used quite well, go. quite there frequently. That's and right. It's just, it, you know, little by little, it, it's it's being sort of accepted. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. It does turn some off, James, but also it kind of gets your attention as well. So it's a bit of a trade-off there for the for the author. Um, Barbara did a good job with all that foreign stuff, says Eva. I happen to know that Eva lives in Italy. Foreign stuff indeed. What a, yeah, more problematic in the US, absolutely. Thank you very much. I think we're off to a good start. Let's look at the numbers so far. Remember, those numbers can change, Jonathan, as the genius room hits its stride. Um, I think that's a very respectable 56. We'll come back and look at that again in another uh, minute or two. Uh, we're on a roll, I think, guys. You'll try another one. Here we go. Submission number two. It's cosy crime. Oh, I can't tell you how much I feel like some cosy crime. It just feels like it's the right thing at the moment, doesn't it? Christie and so on. I bet they're, they're all making a resurgence, at least probably in the audiobook market. You know, I think cosy crime and audiobooks go together. This is the Essex Affair. It's from Marie, and this is Marie's blurb. Eccentric, eccentric detecting duo, grumpy French hacker Florian Chatelain, and incurably noisy Juno-esque crime writer Antonia Wilson Hart. <laughs> I've run out of breath. Our <laughs> star guests at a murder mystery weekend, where fiction becomes reality. Now, actually, Agatha Christie did write about that, actually, funny enough. This is a story of betrayal, deception, blackmail, death, and good food. What's not to like? Um, eldest of seven children, this is Marie. Yeah, it is a bit, but actually, Essex Serpent did incredibly well, so, you know, why not? Uh, eldest of seven children, Marie, family roots in India and Scotland. I have always been a voracious reader and my house is filled with books. Uh, my favourite genre is probably travel writing, and I very much enjoy travelling myself. I have two children, a son who lives in Bolivia. Well, I wonder how often you get out there, actually. And a daughter who lives in Brighton. I write an environmental blog, makeonechange.com. I was going to um, put that on the, on the screen, actually, Marie. i uh, link to that, but it appears to have expired. So you might want to pay some attention to that. Um, meanwhile, we're all going, to, all going to be paying great attention to this narration from Jeff. The Essex Affair by Marie, read by Jeff. Chapter 1. Amanda King threw open the French windows to a study and complicated the death of her sister-in-law. She felt a glow of satisfaction at the scenario filling her mind. A murdery mystery weekend with Stephanie as the victim. She envisaged all the protagonists, those dreadful reality TV people, clumping around her house, braying with excitement. They would think it but a game. They would have no idea a real crime would take place. She imagined them admiring the authenticity of the setting. Gay Bower Hall could easily play the role of the clue to her house. They will be taking selfies to post on Facebook. Me as Miss Peacock in the library. No doubt the first time they had ever been in the library in their lives. She would need to ensure there were no small portable objects left around. 
These were the sort of people who might think bagging the memento of the event probably included in the price they paid. Where would be the best setting for the murder? She factored the wooden cabin she used as her yoga sanctuary, but the library would fit better with tradition. One or two of them would follow the clues and discover Stephanie's body there. Amanda could not decide whether the body should be lying on the oriental rug or draped artistically in the wing armchair. They were called to the others and no doubt discussed the crime amongst themselves. Gradually, it would dawn on one of the brighter ones, there must be some bright ones, that the actor lay unfeasibly still. Someone would notice the wound on Stephanie's skull was a bit too realistic to be stage makeup. One of them would shake her arm and it would become clear that she was truly dead. Some would scream, maybe all would scream, and hastily retreat from the room. Looking over the shoulders, afraid a poker-wielding murderer was coming for them too. Amanda smiled, such a soothing reverie. She was across the terrace and over her grounds. The mid-afternoon June sun illuminated the golden stone of Gay Bower Hall. The gardens and surrounding woodland perpetuated the dream of a rural idol. The warm, fat, cooing sound of wood pigeons in the ancient oak, the bees industriously buzzing among the flower beds. The tranquility only disturbed by the noise of planes passing overhead. Outside all was serene. But serenity was an unknown quality inside the hall. Amanda King, the owner of this magnificent building and grounds, grasped her left wrist while counting the number of beats to a minute. She took her pulse regularly, along with measuring her blood pressure twice a day. She paced up and down, so nil by her many anxieties she found herself unable to relax. The phrase, nest of vapours, came to her mind. It had a poetic, biblical sound to it, and aptly summed up her feelings. She lived in a nest of vipers. As she gazed over the lawns, her husband crossed the terrace heading towards the drive and the lane to the village. She gave him a look of naked yearning. He was so tall, so striking-looking, so well-dressed in his Paul Smith jeans and bicycle Prince shirt. But young, well, young compared to her, Sometimes a small doubt crept into Amanda's mind, a tiny niggle, but could it be correct when people said he married Amanda for her money? This was the problem with living in a nest of vipers. They poisoned your thoughts. She returned to her desk and forced herself to sit down and contemplate the letter she was writing to her solicitor. It was on thick cream paper, hand made for her in Venice, embosed with her name and the name of her house. She picked up a gold amalachite Montblanc pen and scanned what she had written. The note detailed what changes she wished to make to her will, a matter too important to trust her email. Amanda read her instructions and smiled. She enjoyed redistributing her fortune and often changed her will. All right, let's go straight to the genius room. Um, brilliant stuff going on there, actually. I don't know how much I've got I can bring your attention to, actually. If you're watching the recording, just freeze it and just read everything because it's all brilliant stuff. Um, Annie, Annie said, love that first line. Yeah, 
Um, James, catch your blurg, 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 blurg. I've caught the blurg. Um, Tongue twisting tangle. Um, Lex loves the setup. Telling you up front, this is a cover for crime. Let's see where it goes. And then Eva, because um, the junior stream always knows far more than me. She says, interesting writing, but quick as a flash. She says, I can't see it now. She actually gives me the reference. Yeah, she says, Eva, um, same plot used by Agatha Christie and Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, it's um, it's not uh, it's not an original uh, plot idea by any means. The thing is, though, no. it doesn't have to be that original, actually, especially mm. if it's genre fiction. What did you think, then? Coming back to you again, Jack, putting on the spot a lot today. That's okay. Uh, the same as, uh, I can't remember who was in the genius room. Uh, nothing stood out. I thought it was well written. I thought, you know, it flowed lovely. Uh, I agreed the first line with the, the complicated, the murder. Let you know exactly what you were dealing with and, you know, what to expect. That was great. For me, the narration went on too long. A character should have come in much earlier because although it is, you know, a cosy mm. crime, you still want the tension. You still want the characters. Oh, yeah. You still want the drama, yeah. you know, and that narration was, you know, you could hear murder she wrote, you know, you in the narration. And for me, the problem is, at this point, there's nothing to make it stand out at all. But I think the craft is very good. Good. Excellent. I'm just looking at more of the uh, Junior Stream comments now. Galadriel comes in and says, it feels flat losing me. That's always the danger, actually. Yeah, an arresting first uh, sentence, first paragraph or two, and then it goes off the boil a little bit. Too much interior thoughts. Yeah. Ed says, some work needed on point of view, and Vagabond says, feel it should be less cosy and have a bit more pace and tension. Got no reason to turn the page out. That's very, very important. And Andy says, Amanda sounds fun, but I'm not sure I want to be in her head for a whole novel. I'm guessing this was a sort of prologue. And Lex says, uh, sort of counterpart to Annie's comment at the beginning, I also love that last line, often changed her will. Fantastic. Multiple meaning, meaning potential there, Johnny. Yeah, I thought there was a nice voice coming through from the main character. Um, I like some of the, you know, the Raya sides and, and the sort of observations of her being sort of um, Lady of the Manor, for want of a better word, and, yeah. and for you know, fearing people coming in pinching her sort of little sort of ornaments and stuff like that. Um, you know, that was well that was well rendered, and I think also. Um, we were very much in that Jessica Fletcher place. We were very much in that, excuse me, mm. where she wrote. But there were there were one or two things. I noticed page two or something like that. She reintroduced herself as Amanda King, isn't it? Amanda, she, she was introduced in the first instance then, then halfway through. And then she used the full name of the hall, Bar Hall or Gay Bar Hall or something like that. And I yeah. thought things like that needed a little look from an edit point of view. Uh, but I, I quite enjoyed it. Uh, but what Jack says is true. I think we were we were also in her head for too long. We needed something maybe rather than her introspection about what she was going to do. Um, we needed we, we needed the butler to come in. We needed something to happen. We needed something to come in. You know, we, we were, and the others who said we were in her head too long. Yeah. Uh, but it was nice. It, it has potential. I think it was very well written. And I thought... Well, I think it's got potential. For me, there was a voice in there. You know, her asides as part of the author's voice were nice. I, I, I enjoyed that. This is genre fiction. It's very clearly genre fiction. Yeah. Well, not, nothing wrong with yeah. that at all. Um, while you push your button, Johnny, I'm just going to ask... Yeah, yeah. That's right. I'm just going to ask uh, Jack about... Um, 
original plots. Shakespeare was famous or infamous for never using an original plot in his life. Uh, depending on where you look, uh, people say there's only three original plot ideas or maybe seven or maybe 12 or I don't know what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But ultimately, there's not that much original, in, is there, in, in, the, in the plotter sphere. So what's a poor writer to do? Uh, a poor writer is to concentrate on character and setting. If you have characters that live and breathe and engage people, then readers will go along with the character. The setting allows you to explore everything, you know, from politics, social mm. questions. And again, you know, these can be real engagement points for the reader. And so I know crime, you know, is supposed to be, well, apart from romance, maybe most heavily dependent on uh, you know the conventions of the genre but we can't play with that you know it's yeah. allowed my, nice. the, my favorite crime thing ever was the wire on uh, on the tv but it was kind of long enough and deep enough you know to feel like a novel uh, and it completely upturned the genre of tv fiction while yeah. still going through the conventions yeah. so it is possible to do it totally. you concentrate on other aspects like the characters and like the setting that's right that's what we need to see Murray. that's that's great advice actually from jack thank you very much and we've got some stuff going on in the chat room. I was going to explain Geno-esque, actually, but it's already been done. Uh, Vagabond says, uh, Geno-esque is a tall, rather impressively built woman in uh, response to Ronnie's question. And then Hannah comes back and says, what is an impressively built woman? And I'm going nowhere near that at all. <laughs> but, we are, but we are going near, near to the uh, submission number three. When you join our weekly huddle, certain things happen. Now, not that. Bring your writing, your book titles, your blurbs, anything really, for expert and sympathetic input. In confidence. Other websites charge a fortune for this kind of thing. In Latopia, the oldest community wait, wait, of writers on the net up. is included in your modest subscription. Latopia, we're here for you. Oh, yeah, we are. Right now, we're here for Jill. Hello. Hello, Jill. Hope you're with us. It's a hidden eye. It's crime. Just crime. It's good enough. Huge, great genre, of course. Oh, I've been trying to dig out some facts and figures about, you know, the size of the crime market. And again, it's really hard to delineate it and get anything that you feel comfortable in quoting. So I haven't really, and there's crimes, there's thrillers, and I don't know. But anyway, it's big. Bless you, Jack. Um, here's Jill's, that's right, here's Jill's blurb. In 1980s London, Lisa, normally suspicious of man, falls for dependable Mike. The day after she tells him she's pregnant, she watches TV as his distinctive van is pulled from a lake. Police deny the van is Mike's, but he never reappears. Was Mike who she thought he was? Or were her own secrets responsible for Mike's disappearance? She's about to give birth, but then, behind Mike's disappearance, she glimpses the shadow of the man she's been running from all her adult life. Dark doings. Uh, Jill, I've been writing for 10 years. Uh, the last three full-time, uh, beginning by gaining a distinction with the Open University. Fantastic. Good. Great start. Ahead and I was selected for pitching at Pitch Perfect Bloody Scotland. I was a young activist in the 1980s, weren't we all? 
uh, and have followed the spy cop scandal oh yeah me too actually i know one of the people involved in that which forms the background for the novel that's very interesting a little bit of a giveaway actually but very interesting uh and we have the first of two fabulous readings from emily a hidden eye by jill read by emily they dragged the van from the water like a harpooned whale. Lisa watched it lurch towards the bank, water spilling from the wheel arches and window seals. She only caught a glimpse on the little television before the picture shifted, enough to see the van was white, like Mike's, like hundreds of others, thousands even. They'd used it for the trip to Snowdonia, removing a seat to make room for the mattress, camping it in a lay-by and cooking up baked beans on a gas burner, bacon too for Mike. Lisa lowered her eyes, digging the spoon into the corners of the pan to stop the onions from sticking, scraping at the niggle of worry the van had caused her. Cat would be home any minute, two for dinner. Mike had only been gone twelve hours, but she was missing him already. That was all. His touch, his voice, and the hand pushing curly hair back from his forehead. Yesterday had changed things between them, and she wanted him here, even though cooking was quicker without him. His breath would be warm on the back of her neck and his arms would wrap around her middle until she batted him away, saying she couldn't cook with him holding her. He'd have no dinner unless he let her go. With a grin he'd kiss and release her, then slump on the sofa with a book. When he came back from Bristol, she'd ask him to move in and give up his flat and tooting. The screen brightened and drew her back to the news. Behind the limbs of a spider plant, four divers bobbed on the lake's surface before plunging under. How would it feel to swim through murk and reach into darkness, flinching as you touch something yielding and dreadful? Lisa squirmed guiltily, enjoying the warmth of the kitchen. She reached to click on the kettle, oil from the pan spitting hot on her fingers, so she turned down the heat. If tea was in the pot and the news on, Cat would flop on the sofa when she came in, slouching for a while to argue with reporters or politicians, anyone at hand. Later, TV off and sister attentive, Lisa would tell her. Cat would say again that she liked Mike, thought him an okay guy. Besides, Annie had been just twenty-one when Cat was born, and look how magnificently that turned out. Mike and Lisa would be wonderful together, of course they would. Cat would hug her and laugh, claiming the credit, and Lisa would let her. It was Cat who introduced them, after all. Mike had smiled yesterday when she told him. She was nervous, of course, beforehand, but there was no need. Mike was pleased at her news. Delighted, in fact. She needed to trust him more, and from now on that would be the top of her to-do list. Trust Mike to love her as much as she loved him. She didn't want him to go to Bristol, not so soon after she had told him, but they needed the money, now more than ever. So he went. On the screen in the living room, the van flailed towards the bank, as if trying to break free of the straps which held it. Then a mid-shot. The maker's badge, a nose drawn between headlight eyes, which showed it was a Volkswagen, like Mike's. Lisa's teeth clicked on a hangnail. The Chilterns, said the reporter, the hills appearing behind him in a long shot, as if by magic. And Lisa breathed out. Nowhere near Bristol. Then the camera zoomed in on the van, dripping as it slumped on the bank. For a second, less, it was there, on the door, before the camera looked away. The peace sticker, the one she'd given Mike before the demonstration. He couldn't peel it from the backing, so she had shown him how. The corner was the key. The television was inches from her face, and in a minute she would understand how her eyes had conjured up the sticker. 
She'd fetch a cloth and dab at the drips of oil trailing from the kitchen. When she knew the van wasn't Mike's, she'd do that. So, R.G. Wizzy says, I think I know this writer. It's funny, isn't it? Small world. How's that funny? Um... Um, RG also says, I'm drawn in via this blurb. Hope the storytelling matches up. Uh, and James says, Mike knocked her up, then ran off. Typical man. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Hannah says, good voice here. Um, and Galadriel says, strong opening. So you're getting some uh, broad level of support here. And it says, like that harpooned whales, nice line, but I'm still wondering if it visually makes sense. Nicely written, though. James says, start strong. Eva says, well-structured, genre writing. We know Eva can be hard to please sometimes. Oh, yes. Um, and just on the reading, got to mention, you read everything fluidly, Emily, says uh, Galadriel. Do they still do the speaking clock? You'd be great. <laughs> what did you think, John? Right. Uh, yeah, I, I thought well, this was good, confident writing. It was well put together. But as it went on, um, you know, looking in the context of the blurb, uh, I think the point you made, Pete, is valid. I, I think the blurb, if anything, gives a bit too much away in that respect. Uh, if, if this is going to be a hidden story, and, and, and I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd be sort of inclined to describe the disguise that a little bit. But there was another bit, as it went on, it was a bit wasn't stacking up for me. If Mike, if they live in London, Mike's in Bristol, She's preparing dinner on the same day that he's gone. Mm. Um, as I understand it, she spots this thing on the news. Well, I, 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 this is going to sound awfully pedantic, but if it's on the news, it's not going to be on the main news. It's just a, it's a, a car, it's a van being pulled from the lake, so it would have yeah. to be a localised news, which you wouldn't see in Bristol. It just began to, I thought, hang on a minute, it, it's like putting some dots on and drawing the lines. I think yeah. if you want to get that plot in, yes, by all means, but... but well, it might be an unreliable narrator, it. maybe. I don't know. Maybe you've spotted that no, before. No, no, most no. most people do. I don't know. Possibly, it's a, it, just as it went on, I thought, hang on, you know, the, the sort of pedant in me thought, hmm, how, how yeah. could this stick together as, as, as a plot? But the craft was great, and I, I think it was well written, and I think the story's intriguing, and I think yeah, the economy of language is always good. But it's just that thing. I, I've made a note. Plot doesn't stack up, I've said here on, on my yeah. card. Well, it's got and to. Although it does. I think, it needs to, I think it needs to be shown differently, perhaps. Yeah, Ed agrees with you on that. Stacey enjoys the tension story. Um, Michelle says, another fantastic reading. And John, John Bertel says, great writing and storytelling. What did you think, Jack? Yeah, I, I liked it. I liked the writing. I liked the storytelling. I thought the, the imagery was really good at the beginning. I think John has a very valid point. You know, you need to know. Maybe somebody could ring and say, turn on the local news or whatever. And yeah. there needs to be a reason to pull the van out. If there's a body connected to it, then there would be a reason. But then the other thing, that slightly later on in the piece, I started to miss, you know, where was the fear and the terror that this could be Mike? You know, it's yeah. the same type of van. He's gone. You know, yeah. Why not ramp up that drama? Why not yeah. let people know she's afraid that this could be him? You know, it's almost kind of like reporters, and she's mm. half watching it, half not watching it. And for me, that just didn't get the tone right. I, I think it's really good writing. I think it's excellent. But I think she just needs to fill it out with the drama of the scene and the, the emotional response. 
Got it. Got it. Okay. But you, you gave it uh, 80. You gave it uh, four out of five stars for commercial bang. Is that is that accurate? Is that right? Yeah. You know why? Because yeah. I think, I mean, you said the spy cop thing. And yeah. obviously you can see where this is going. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, it's very current. And, yeah, it is, you know, isn't it? There, yeah. there are people who would like to address this issue. And so if she can get, you know, the mechanics of it right, then mm -hmm. I think it's very sellable. Doesn't yeah. mean anyone will buy it, but I think <laughs> it's very kind of topical. Oh, you sound like a cynical old agent there. Good grief. You've been hanging <laughs> out in the wrong circles. I think, that's I think, I think all the composite parts are, are, are nice. And, and I think if, if they're woven together well, you know, it could be onto something here, definitely. Yeah. I'm just thinking about what you said, actually, a moment ago, uh, Johnny, because I'm a bit slow. Um, I think you're absolutely right, actually. That I think we tend to read crime and thrillers and things like that a little bit more analytically, don't we? Because that's part of the game. Yeah. We got, you know, yeah. we got to work stuff out, and there are, there are clues being dropped. So we're kind of aware of these things a bit more than just general fiction. Yeah, and, and that, that's yeah. that's what I picked up. I thought here's a here's a clue being dropped, but really and truly that clue can't really it be won't. dropped in that instance. I don't think yeah. I don't I don't think real life allows that clue to be dropped that way. So as we're not in fantasy, we're in quasi real life situation. You know, you know with with a police situation. Yeah, but just I start getting over maybe over analytical, maybe pedantic. But that, well, that, actually, we've got we got, we as always. You know, if you want if you want a definitive answer to anything, ask the genius room because it just so happens we have uh, Andy Andy D in the in the genius room today who is also quite a regular guest here. And when he's not a guest on pop-ups, he's reporting the news on television. And he says, and we've got to take this as gospel from a news perspective, it depends on the context of the van being pulled out, whether it makes national yeah. over regional yeah. news. So there you go. Yeah. That's uh, straight from the horse's yeah. mouth. Let's look at the numbers. That's pretty good, actually, Jill. You're getting up there. And you've still got a bit of room for manoeuvre because... Um, not everyone in the genius room will have voted yet. Um, that does mean it can go down as well as up, uh, but you never know. So I'm looking at that score of 74 to beat, and you're getting close to that. You're getting close. Do you know what I think we should do in the next minute or two? I think we should talk to... Yes, let's see what's going on in Jack's world. Now, let me... I think everybody knows Jack, but if they don't, let me just say... Summarise, really, I suppose. Jack was born and bred in Liverpool of immigrant Irish parents. He left school to work in engineering and car factories, although I don't know how much of that is actually left in Liverpool at the moment. We'll find out in a, in a sec. He went to university at the age of 40, uh, and his debut novel was the first part of the Liverpool Mysteries, Under the Bridge, published by Orthodox Press. Now, the interesting thing is this. Liverpool has produced very many top-class writers over the years, including Beryl Brain, Brain, Bainbridge, Clive Barker. Um, and this is one of the most interesting quotes I've read recently about Liverpool. Allen Ginsberg. You remember him, poet Allen Ginsberg? Yeah, he yeah. described Liverpool as, quote, the centre of consciousness of the human universe. So can you explain exactly what makes the place so special and maybe what uh, Ginsburg was on when he said that? I uh, don't know what he was on, but I'll have a bit. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> uh, I, I know that there's a real point that, you know, Liverpool 
became the, the city of empire. Okay, so it started off with London, but the majority of the slave trade ended up going through Liverpool. Oh, yeah. Then you had the famine, and millions of people from Ireland come across to Liverpool yeah. and going out to America, Australia, New Zealand, wherever. But these were kind of cataclysmic social, political, and cultural events that didn't mm. impact in the same way in the rest of the UK and I, I think that history uh, lives on you know there isn't you know you turn over a stone in Liverpool and you find the Irish and slavery and you know it's only in the last 20 30 years that has begun to be explored more but what it does is it leaves a residue of kind of conflict tension and a worldness yeah. you know Liverpool as a port faces out to the rest of the world yeah. there's lots of sailors in and out and I know that happened in London and Bristol but these other things connected to Ireland and the slavery I mean Liverpool did become the slave uh, port of of uh, Europe and of yeah. the UK well, there, it was and the so triangular trade, period. wasn't it? It's the centre of the triangular yeah, yeah. trade. Yeah, but there is—I yeah. mean, I'm not slandering hundreds of thousands of scousers, but there is a sort of seamy underbelly to Liverpool that makes it particularly appropriate for for crime and noir. Is that is that true, or am I just a, a nasty prejudiced southerner? No, I think Liverpool, because partly because of those things and the consequences of them, has always been a centre of contest and struggle and conflict. Mm -hmm. And that is sometimes in political terms, but sometimes it's in social terms. If you have lots of people who are disenfranchised, then the one way they can enfranchise themselves economically is to take it. And mm. it's a real tradition of that, you know, based on real things, you know. Yeah. Dockers who were the main uh, source of labour for decades were casual labour and <laughs> there was no income guaranteed and people have to find a way to live and what's they did and they always do this is something you you of course are writing about because the second book in your trilogy is here across the water uh it's just come out hasn't it yeah, yeah. came out about 10 days ago yeah and let's just show your amazon page as well if anybody wants to learn more about jack and about, about jack's writing there you go dashing young man that you are actually in that picture very impressive um so what's what's this what's the other thing that's going on here about the liverpool irish axis what's what's what describe that to us what's going on there well, it's part of uh, the reality of the UK, not just Liverpool, but uh, particularly Liverpool. Uh, I think one figure I saw was 75% of the population of Liverpool can trace some ancestry back really? through Ireland. Really? You look at cities... You look at cities like Coventry, Birmingham, parts of London, South Shields and Newcastle, then you will find maybe not as much, but similar kind of numbers. And there's an unrecorded... Between Liverpool and, and Ireland, and, and you know, there's a, a huge uh, um, synergy, as I say, really, between the two. Uh, there's an awful lot of... Um, Irish people sort of living in and around Liverpool and, and a lot of sort of people in Liverpool with Irish uh, roots, with Irish um, ancestors and relatives and stuff like that, Irish families. Absolutely. But I think partly because of 
the history, and again, you know, a contested history, that there is a kind of uh, unremarked, unrecorded development of culture that is beginning mm. to express itself. It comes out when mm. people, you know, if you, if you look at the Beatles in the 1960s, uh, you know, world-famous band, there's a very good thing that says they were the biggest band that Ireland never had, because all of them had Irish ancestry. And it was only later in their lives that John and Paul, uh, George went from a kid, but later on, John and Paul began to look at their own Irish roots. And is this what happens... Is this what happens in the second book in the Liverpool Mysteries series, where they basically your protagonists go and trace their roots? Uh, Not trace their roots. They go and get into big trouble. (laughs) (laughs) It's a crime drama. Great. Fantastic. Does the action move to Ireland, Jack? Sorry? Yeah. Is it set in Ireland as well? There's two narratives, one in Liverpool and one mainly in Wicklow in Southern Ireland, although Mm. it does go across the border. And it looks at that ongoing relationship between the people in both places and how they Mm. continue to interact. Whatever happens at the level of politics and governments, the people have always gone back and forward. Thank you very much, Jack. Let's get on to a submission before we've got two more and the tension is rising here um, because this is the last show of the month. So let's have a look and see who's next. Here's Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Nice to have you along. Live. Fantastic. Matthew Hockey. It's historic crime slash procedural. It's another area that we know really well. Everything's in order. That's the title. Everything is in order. May 1936, Nazi Berlin. When senior detective Oskar Heinzmann accidentally kills a suspect during a routine arrest, his life and career begin to collapse around him. However, that same night, a party propaganda director's son is kidnapped. Heinzmann knows that if he can solve the case and get the boy back, it might be enough to save him. He must lead his team on a trawl through the twisted glitz of Hitler's Hollywood, down in the basements of crumbling slums and up to the very corridors of power. So, this is Cabaret Meets Columbo, I think. I've given you a logline. There you go, Matthew. That's for free. My name is Matthew J. Hockey. You say my crime and speculative short stories have appeared in print and online with Akashic Books, Shotgun Honey, Thuglet Magazine, fabulous name, and many more. I also have short stories available in numerous anthologies from Ghostwood Books, Falstaff Books, and most recently, Air and Nothingness Press. This is my first novel, and this is a fabulous reading from Johnny. Everything is in order. Written by Matthew Hockey. Read by John. Chapter 1. 1759. Tuesday, 5th of May, 1936. The kale green opal crawled along Simeonstrasse with its headlights hooded and low, pinpricks of light against the gathering gloom. There was no decal, no livery, no special plate to mark it out as a police vehicle. Nor was there any sign that the two men inside, with their overcoats, felt-brimmed hats and practised don't-fuck-with-us grimaces, were professional detectives of the Criminal Investigation Bureau, the Criminal Polizei. And yet, 
Whenever Oscar Heisman drove, perfectly innocent balloons turned their eyes to the ground as though they were wanted men. They ducked into doorways, about-faced down alleys, or, if caught in the open with no cover, hunched their shoulders up around their ears to better hide their faces behind their collars. Christ, look at these pigeons scatter. Heisman hissed with near disgust as a youth in short pants pulled furiously at the front door of his tenement house, trying to get inside before their car pulled level with him. It's six in the evening. We should have at least a gang of boys given us the eyeball. It shouldn't be this easy. Come on, Crowsberg, give us a little something. Show me some spit. Flex a claw. Even a warning whistle would make me feel better. Cripple. The Cripper are coming. Where are they all? Heisman's partner, Georg Brunner, turned from where he had been blowing hot breath in the passenger window. Inside, where we should be, listening to the Fuhrer on Daddy's new radio while Moody strings up the bunting. He obliterated the patch of fog with his fist, leaving a greasy smear on the glass. Don't tell me you preferred it before. Before. Once it had been so bad that if he'd wanted to arrest someone in one of the blocks, he had to stomp in with as many Dobermans as men, and steal helmets for everyone coming up the stairs. I do miss the excitement of coming back down to the car wondering what the rascals had done when I'd been away. Have they slashed my tires today? Has somebody shattered my windscreen? No, there's human shit under the door handle. Try having somebody throwing a prized up cobblestone at you. Brunner lifted his hat to show the ugly, bashed dug egg of his scalp, the patch where the hair came in white. That changes your perspective, let me tell you. Heisman was broad-shouldered and so tall he had to hunch forward over the steering wheel to stop his hat creasing on the ceiling whenever they hit a bump. His size and shape meant that he had spent 16 years of his police career being the first man in through the door, the first person they called on if a suspect got rowdy and needing calming down, the person they had standing just out of the cone of light, not moving, not saying anything, if a murderer wouldn't confess. His presence alone was usually enough. The idea that at any moment he could do something. Every day he woke up with an unbroken nose and no fresh scars to go with the straight razor lash hidden behind his jawline or the leathery skin of the puncture wound at his collarbone, he counted as a victory. Georg, on the other hand, was a lot shorter, though just as broad, with the barrel chest and thick arms of a fairground boxer. He was younger by only a few months, and yet somehow, no matter how much he drank or how little he slept, he had the clear eyes and the fresh face of a 25-year-old. He was so sick of people assuming he was Heisman's protege, he'd started experimenting with the toothbrush moustache. Heisman parked the car and all but leapt out. Anyone would think you're compensating for something, Brunner grunted, heaving a massive 20-pound sledgehammer off the back seat of the car. Stores at Alex were all out of the little ones. Our colleagues at the Gestapo had borrowed them for cracking walnuts. Heisman snatched the hammer from him one-handed, just to show that he could, though his arms screamed in protest. At 36, he was no longer the young recruit he'd been. Sorry, I was busy there, just sort of keeping up with the comments in the genius room, who are more informed than I've ever known them today. Um, there we go. Let's have a look at um, let's have a look at what they're saying. And I can tell you that kale is a subject of conversation there. Uh, Barbara says fab reading, Johnny. Um, Annie, who's always very perceptive. Uh, nice opening paragraph, maybe a tiny bit overwritten. Galadriel atmospheric opening, another great reading, Johnny. German theme tonight, says Barbara. Um, 
Eva says, World War, uh, World War II stories are still popular. Blurb doesn't not convince me totally. And he says, so, so, Blurb, but like the idea of Hitler's Hollywood. Um, Paolo, Paolo Joe picks on the title. I'm not, I'm not sure about the title. Um, she says, really do not like the title. Sounds like something you have to read for a community college course. Yeah, I've got a, I've got some thoughts about that. Um, then Galadriel says, a little bit later on, I seems to be slowing down, getting bogged down with a little too much description of characters. Stacey says, I'm not sure if we need all this physical description of these two characters this near the beginning of the story. So you got inside that from the narrator's point of view, Johnny. Yeah. Um, let me just ask you one thing before you give your general thoughts, and that is the protagonist here, our, our man, he's a Nazi, isn't he? It's, yeah, it sounds like he may well be, yeah. He's and, a Nazi. Uh, okay, so that's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's one of those things, it's a, it's a good trick if you can pull it off, if you can make it full time. Yeah. Not, not yeah. nice, but, but, yeah. but, you know, people might start rooting for him, then it, it's it's quite 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 a trick yeah. to pull off. Yeah. But, but, but um, you know, I think it had a real nice noir sort of feeling to it. It was like a between the war, you know, just at the start of the war. I think he caught the atmosphere very well, and I like this idea mm. of 36-year-old policeman who hasn't, he's not in his first flush of youth anymore. Um, you know, all of a sudden, hoiking a hammer up off the back seat is a bit more of a trial, but he's trying not to show it. You know, so he, he, he's, he's getting on a bit, but he's still in the job. And I thought, uh, in this particular submission, there was a nice sort of difference between the two the two characters, just in, in, in how they were described and, and their speech pattern came across quite well. And I think somebody just mentioned a minute ago about, about the... Um, it, we could have done. I think it came alive when they were interacting um, with each other, and, and so, so to the detriment of of all the description, if there yeah. had been more dialogue in there, I think this would have zipped along a bit better as well. But yeah. I think it's very competently, competently written, and and creates a good atmosphere. And we've got rounded characters coming out here. Okay, so enjoyable. some reason our, our chat here is not updating as uh, fast as it should be. I'll pay some attention to that mm -hmm. moment. I'll just bring you um, um, word from, oh dear, oh dear. Yeah, and he says, only show I have with this is, <clears throat> uh, these cops are Nazis, right? Oh, we meant to like them. That's the thing. Uh, yeah, and I, I, that's what I was saying too, actually, Annie. Uh, RG says, love the physical descriptions. Don't fuck us with expressions, fairground boxer, etc. Ed says, not necessarily. I think that's an answer to Annie. He's been in the police long before. The micro-genre trope is that the policemen are not actually Nazis. Okay, let me um, let me get the chat room updated for you, and let's hear from Jack. Yeah, I think whoever it was that said that might be right. The, I've seen something recently where there was tension between the police and the Nazis. So I think that is probably a theme that's going to develop, but just hasn't come out yet. So I don't think we can assume that they are fully-fledged uh, supporters of the regime. Yeah, otherwise the, the book has got a very narrow market if, if, they, if they still are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, Matthew, you're with us live. Sorry, Matthew, I was just going to say, you changed the title. Let us let, bung the title in the in the YouTube chat, Matthew, so we can have a look at the new title. Sorry, Jack, go on. No, no. Okay, if that's the new title, then I think yeah. it's much better. Okay. The Berlin Shuffle. Why? Mm. Because, I, like you said at the beginning, you know, the whole uh, cabaret, and what was the other one? But anyway. Uh, uh, Columbo, actually. Uh, yeah, Columbo means well, cabaret. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to pitch it. Yeah. I can't help it. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, yeah, but the uh, the cabaret thing, but not just the cabaret, but that period of history is really interesting, and people love to read about it. So I think, you know, in a in a weird way, it is commercial. But yeah. he would have to clarify the standing of the main characters yeah. pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. Just well, on the crafting of it, sorry. Uh, I think everything John said was great, but I just wanted the sledgehammer to swing earlier and all the information to come after that, you know, as, a res as things were going on. I think it was all really well done, but it just took too long to get there. Yeah, and Pamela Joe brings a note of realism uh, if we need. So, Nazis were beating Jews to death, and American tourists, women who wanted to marry Jews, etc., etc. Et you can't skirt that, and that is that is an issue. And uh, you're you're right to to raise that. Um, Hannah says some people were Nazis because they had to be. Some have been caught and interrogated regarding betrayal of country. Choice works for us. Uh, choice work for us, or go to concentration camps. Mm. Quite that's why he there. has to resolve it very quickly or yeah, give some good exactly. strong indications yeah. yeah i wonder you see i don't know personally would i read a book like that i don't know actually i don't really know um interesting subversive writing uh berlin shuffle we like that a bit more but we only can judge the title you've sent in matthew everything's in order so you got marks on that let's see how the numbers are looking not bad not bad and the numbers are still coming in from the genius room um uh, yeah, John and I like the title about the same amount. Craft like that a lot. Commercial potential, I don't know. I think I think it could it could work, but I think the N word is an issue as well. So difficult. So let's have a look. We, we just one more submission this month. Actually, just this month. I don't I don't want to finish, but we've got to. Let's see how the numbers look uh, before our final submission. There we, go. there we go jill is 68 no one at the moment is actually challenging miriam who had a towering 74 two weeks ago but you never know maybe joe is going to in the next few moments with social enterprise let's find out here we go Final submission of the month. Social Enterprise, Crime, Noir by Joe. Joe Menz. Here's the blurb. The kid's fed up. Kicked out of college. A misfit. He hangs around aimlessly with a bunch of roughs, just trying to scratch a dishonest living. Oh, how many literary agents do you know? But then, the mysterious director shows up and starts running things. And the kid finds himself catapulted into an underworld of turf wars, dirty money, and grant-funded community projects. Hmm. Tell everybody about you. Um, Joe Minns has lived in the Midlands, Scotland, London, Devon, and Manchester, and now resides in the Calder Valley. Um, so this is very short, actually, Joe. I, I can tell you didn't quite know what to say in the in the uh, about me section. Um, have a chat. Um, come into a huddle and the type, and we'll talk about that. Uh, she lives with chronic illness. She enjoys wholesome activities like gardening, crochet, how appropriate for crime writers, and climbing trees when she's able. And I'm delighted to say the final submission of the month gets the second reading of the day from Emily.
Social Enterprise by Joe, read by Emily. She parked up two or three streets away, despite the driving rain. Double yellows everywhere on this cramped estate. The professor wondered if the place would have its own car park. He said as much, and she, striding ahead, pretended not to hear. He didn't own a serviceable raincoat. They turned into a cul-de-sac. Ancient trees encircled the church at the end, completely incongruous in this neglected, concrete utopia. The church was wearing its years better than the rest of the estate. Perhaps she would burst into flames once they stepped onto consecrated ground, in which case he would keep walking and never look back. They passed under the lich gate and she didn't. Excuse me, she was saying to a woman bundled up in blue waterproofs, hurrying past them clutching a bunch of dying flowers. I'm looking for the community project. Oh, the woman pointed back out of the churchyard. There's an office in the community rooms. You go around the side. Ask for Carol or Jamie. The community rooms was a squat of prefab. It did indeed have a car park, although the professor did not say, I told you so. Rain bounced off the worn tarmac and gathered in potholes. A banner flapping at one end of the building proclaimed All Hallows Community Project, in colourful bubble letters, overly brash and a little tattered around the eyelets, but still the most appealing part of the scene. It was Carol herself, as it happened, who answered the director's knock. The director introduced herself and said nothing about the professor. Come in, come in, Carol pushed short greying hair out of her eyes. Shocking weather. She peered round the door and said, Jamie, the social enterprise is here. The director caught the professor's eye and smirked. He slid his gaze to the linoleum flooring. Carol led them into a crowded kitchen. Over the noise of the kettle, she said, Jamie will be along in a minute. He's the youth intern. It's his project, really. I just do a few bits here and there. That's nonsense. Carol's a linchpin, declared a voice from the doorway. A young man with blonde hair and a negro face stepped in and shook their hands. Jamie, I just come up with crazy ideas and Carol makes everything actually happen. Great to meet you both. Which one's the director? Carol arranged the cups, teapot, milk bottle and sugar bowl on a stained tray. Jamie held the door open. There's more space in the office, he said. There was, but not a lot. It looked like it had been furnished from a skip. Stapled printouts and box files, labelled and relabeled to the point of irrelevance, lay strewn across shabby desks and the walls were dotted with blue tack marks and fading group photographs of smiling children. The clunky laptop behind Jamie looked at least a decade old. They settled into mismatched chairs and the director outlined her proposal. They listened keenly. Carol nodded and Jamie interrupted with, You know, this is a real answer to prayer, and similar sentiments. The professor's chest tightened every time, an itch crawling at the top of his spine. You're doing such valuable work here on the old docks estate the director said. I know it's a very troubled area. Jamie agreed, at length. The professor couldn't help but admire her methods. They walked out into the rain twenty minutes later with exactly what they'd come for. Church projects always know the troublemakers, she said. Never failed me yet. She pushed the box file into his tweed arms. And they hate paperwork, she added. You could say it's a match made in. Okay, so... We won't know, will we, what it was made in unless we buy the book. Let's have a look at the genius room. And um, 
like the blurb says james rg was the last line of the blurb is great vagabond i i'm not sure why you're saying that actually because <laughs> vagabond uh, epitomizes my reaction the grant funded community projects is not a massively interesting thing to me but maybe it is in an ironic sense last line of the blurb was interesting says annie i'd like to know the character's name so maybe that's just me um eva not drawn in by the title of stakes don't seem high hannah could the first she be her name instead? I like names. Yeah, <coughs> wee bit of head, hot, head hopping, says Annie. Not sure which character we're following. The natural dialogue, says Hannah. I thought so too, yeah. Good description of setting. And watch for weird tense changes, says R.G. Mm. Um, Annie says, writing's good. Vagabond, confident, not feeling pulled in by plot or character yet. Very visual, says Michelle. <laughs> Who's the main character? Says James. What did you think for the last time, Jack? I don't know. Uh, something from the room got it for me. And I don't want to sound harsh, but I thought it was well written. I thought it was well constructed. But why should we care? Hmm. And who hmm. are we caring about? Hmm. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough there to give us any sense of drama tragedy fun you know i mean sorry but it, it needs more injecting in that beginning tell us what the story's going to be about where does what's behind this were you interested sorry. to begin with were you interested personally no sorry no. Okay. <laughs> I, and i was confused uh and that's somebody else but you know could the you know a theater project or community project with a director and funds be interesting yes i just don't think this did it, it didn't, it didn't make do it. It okay interesting for so me. you've got you've sorry. got two ciphers mm. really we haven't got names and that's, that's caused some frustration to the genius room and obviously to you too you haven't got names but even just doesn't the fact of just withholding the names uh, raise your curiosity a little bit uh, jack or have i got that wrong I'm not invested in the scenario, and so I can't go with it. Okay. You know, there's nothing that threw me in. I'm really sorry. I, I think the actual craft of the writing was good. Yeah. It was well done. Yeah. It just needs a punch somewhere, a punch. even if it's a little punch. Okay. And like says, the premise and the blurb intrigued me. The actual sample couldn't hold my interest. I'm afraid the story has lost its legs appeal. Uh, it says, it's a bit rushed. We had an arrival conversation of leaving the meeting. But what's happened? And Galadriel says, quite like the writing, but not grabbing me story, which is pretty much what, what uh, Jack's been saying. Although I would read on a little further, Johnny. <laughs> Yeah, I think the thing for me was I like the blurb, so I thought, where, where, where's the kid? Where, where's the kid got to? Because yeah. it sounded like if we we're going to go on the kid's journey, who was being yeah. sort of drawn into this, that would have been yeah. the way to go. But then as soon as we were into the action, I thought, oh, there's a bit of a disconnect here. And, and then as it, as it meandered on, forgive me for using the word meander, but it did seem to meander on. We came into a, a meeting of two protagonists with a, a director and you know a couple of social workers or care work, uh, you know, people who are working on, on this yeah. project. But there were no stakes in it. There was no, you know, Jack summed up, you know, what was there to care about? And it, it was as if we were at a preliminary meeting which had no real bearing on what was going to follow. And, yeah. and if we had a, you know, if we had a find out about the kid, great. I, I think the craft was good. You know, the actual mm. writing, the, the words were good. It was well put together. Lovely line. And it's something about the church was wearing its age better than the estate or something like that, which was a, which was a lovely indictment of, you know, crap. Inner city, you know, architecture and building, yeah. you know, beautiful yes. line. 
stuff like, so stuff like that was really nice. But but to me, I don't know who we've met. I don't know yeah. what their purpose is really. And, yeah, and it's just a little bit confusing. You know, they yeah. confused me, and the heeds and she's threw me quite badly as well. I have to say at the start. The what did? So it's okay. The, the heeds and she's. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was hard. So I better get on the vote here as well, Pete. It was hard uh, for me to 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 pick up what was happening there. Got it. In that respect. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't disagree, but, but I really like the blurb actually. So um, yeah, the blurb is great. Yeah. All right. So uh, you you go ahead and vote, Johnny. Let's just see if and he's pushed his button. Yeah, it's coming through any moment. The attention is rising. At least I am. All done. Thank you very much. Uh, I would recommend the writer reads Nikki French says hi Kai. The book blurbs is from YouTube. The book blurbs always draw me in and the author's a married couple oh that's interesting because we have a married couple on here too from time to time talking about crime writing uh set up the story really well thank you very much Hekin. that's good advice final flashback to the genius room or her or them says honey i agree with johnny it might be worth starting with the kid letting us invest in i totally agree with it actually uh, joe i think you've got some great advice there from um both our special guests and of course from the genius room so let's look at the numbers you got a 55. Nothing to be ashamed of. Congratulations, Joe. Why do you have another go? Have another go. Send it in again in a, in a month or two and see what happens. Um, but what I think is going to happen now is we're going to have a look at the final score from everyone. And it's pretty clear, isn't it? It hasn't actually changed. It hasn't changed. It actually means that you... <laughs> ah, Jill. Yes. Well done, you're our show winner, Jill. And well deserved. Very, very impressive score. But he does nothing at all to shake the, the dominance, the leadership for the uh, past, what, two, three weeks now of, well, look for yourself. Very, very pleased about that. Incredibly well done, actually, Miriam. We all loved it, actually. It just had it. It just had it, and it should. And hopefully, with a little bit of uh, luck and the wind behind us, it will be published. Uh, it will be going to Head of Zeus, who are our publishing partner, and hopefully they will react positively. I've reacted very positively today to the Genius Room, to everyone who's helped make this show possible. As you know, it's a very, very collaborative, cooperative effort. It couldn't be, could be done without, actually. And, of course, to our, our special guests, who I think have given amazing, value today considering we're not paying them uh jack and johnny can't wait to have you back again guys see you next week take care Hit it.